0: Baby, this is what you came for. Lightning
1: strikes every time she moves.
2: Coming at you from the Wee
1: Desert Studio in Houston, and Texas. You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Staten, you, Kevin uh, Cook, uh, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed.
0: Welcome to episode 51 of the Weekly Group Podcast. My name is Austin Statton, and I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook, and back from his European vacation is Jeremy Paxton. Dolores Lozano is actually out preparing for her Missed Texas USA pageant, so I guess she's uh, a little more of a big deal than us. I don't know, maybe you're right. Maybe my sense of
3: self-worth is is all jacked up, because I've never competed in any sort of pageant whatsoever. I did do a little bit of modeling uh, when I was a tiny, tiny young person really for what yeah. um sort of local department store in uh, jacksonville texas uh which is where my extended family hails from um and i didn't i didn't do a very good job i was you're supposed to spin you're supposed to take the clothes walk across the stage sort of spin and show them off and i uh I, I guess i hustled would be the best way to describe it um, i did not like being on stage at that point in my life i grew to like that later on but uh, so my modeling career ended
0: pretty quickly. So are there any photos in existence right now? There must be, but I
3: don't know that I'm tagged in them.
0: I'm not aware of them. Okay. So Jeremy, we need to try to find these photos. I, I absolutely agree yes. with that. Yes. All right. So you actually just got back from a, uh, what, two and a half, three week vacation?
2: Yeah, about three weeks. Um, went through like seven countries, went to Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Russia, Netherlands. Um, it was just... Uh, it was crazy, really fast paced, really fun though. Um, the, the people we met there were just really nice, uh, despite all the craziness in the world, uh, very friendly and kind to Americans. Um, so I, 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 had a blast.
0: Now, my natural question to you would be, did you speak with Vladimir Putin, and did you invite him on the podcast?
2: I did not. Uh, Vladimir Putin was not in St. Petersburg while I was there, but I hear he is there very often. Um, I'd have to get through the FSB, I'm sure, if I wanted to talk to old
0: Vladimir. but well, I think I'm a little disappointed that you didn't try harder. <laughs> um, I think Kevin would have uh, not taken no for an answer. Uh, I mean, at least you could have given a Stoughton. I mean, that would have been... You know,
2: I, I really did not want my visa to be revoked while I was there. Uh, so I was there as a
0: tourist, not a journalist, but next time I'll I'll try harder. Honestly. Yeah, put, put on your press app. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, we're actually going to play some audio here shortly. Uh, Jeremy was uh, kind enough to ask uh, some people in the Netherlands uh, kind of their thoughts on, I guess, the American political system and what their thoughts were on Donald Trump. So we're going to play that audio for you here shortly. But, uh, you know, before we dive into anything, we just want to go ahead and uh, thank our sponsors, We Desserts, for making this episode possible.
3: Yeah, obviously, we love We Desserts. Uh, OUI Desserts, 3411 Kirby, is where the store is located, although you can uh, use Uber Eats uh, to get food delivered to you. Um, But what they're pushing this week is uh, a Groupon. It's a Groupon that's $13 for $20 worth of product. So if my math is correct, that's... um something like seven dollars off uh what you can't do with this group on we've explained this before um it's sort of exasperating to have to explain this over. you can't combine it with other deals uh, if you get a Groupon, it is a deal you can't double up on deals so the 12 for 12 macaroons uh not uh, not you can't use that with the groupon but they are trying to uh, push these groupons obviously if you want uh, some cheaper product i think Maybe the 10% goes with the Groupon? I don't know. You have to ask them about that. If you're a listener of this podcast, you get 10% off of any order at we Desserts. but it may be that you can't combine that with a Groupon. So uh, use common sense. Be a decent human being. A lot of people that get Groupons are not decent human beings. Uh, that's not we saying that. That's me saying that. I'm saying that as a person. I have personal experience. A lot of people that get Groupons are just degenerate morons, but don't be one of those. Get the Groupon for we Desserts. Go in there and get $7 off of your
0: order. Make sure to go check out we Desserts at 3411 Kirby here in Houston. Tell Penny and Jen that uh, the Weekly Brew sent you by and you get 10% off of your entire order. I checked them out uh, last Sunday or I guess, what was it, 4th of July and actually I got some great stuff and had probably too many cookies, but uh, you know, it was a cheat day, right? But uh, uh, as we mentioned a few moments ago, uh, Jeremy, you were in Europe, and you were kind enough to uh, take a microphone with you and uh, ask a few questions. Uh, particularly, the, the audio that we're going to play is uh, what a few people in Europe think of Donald Trump. We've actually got four different sound bites here, so we're going to go ahead and play them, and then we're going to discuss. Whoa. Um, I think it's a dangerous thing to uh, to have in the US. I think uh, there's loads
2: of people, uh, I think, a bit, a bit afraid and a bit feeling not involved. And he's just saying what they want to hear. As a person, I don't know him. As a businessman, um, well, it's easy to
3: start when you have a head start. But um, as a politician, I think it's a bad idea voting for him, as my friend said before. Um, there's a lot of people who feel disenfranchised, and um, he's really well at playing into that, so I think he's smarter than he looks. Sure. Which, uh, well, it, it can be said it's easy, but it's. Um, he's better at playing the audience than his opponents, but uh, I'm glad it's not yet revealed in the polls that way.
2: Well, again, as a person, I don't know him, but uh, he comes across as uh, someone who is not very. Um, adequate, he's not very capable of doing what he wants to do, but he gets a lot of votes from people who would normally not vote. Um, So that's maybe the good thing about Trump, Um, but I don't think he would be able to um, be a president of the United States.
3: I would say
0: he's a wannabe politician that wants to rise to the top, and I think he's an idiot. he makes statements that make no make no sense. Um, some things he says are good, but I think that's only because he wants to rise to the top and it's just words that are flowing, but I don't like him. So Jeremy, I was actually surprised that one, they were that in tune with uh, some of his policies. And, you know, you had you also asked them about Brexit and, you know, we didn't play that audio, but they were very in tune politically to what was going on, not only in their own country, but, you know, throughout the Western world and especially here in the United States. So one, you know, you know credit to the Dutch and our Austrian friend who were able to give us uh, solid answers there. Uh, but one of the things that I found interesting was, like all of us here on the podcast, they weren't fans of Donald Trump.
2: No, they weren't. Um, in fact, you know, they they were really like us, uh, all for except the uh, bad teeth and uncomfortably tight pants. Um, I'd say that they were just like us in opinions about Trump. Um, did not like him, thought he was a fraud, thought he was a phony, um, which they they, you know, they kind of summarized my, uh, my views of him. Now, what I did think was interesting is the audio you didn't hear was the audio I was not a- able to record because I talked to some people that didn't want to be recorded. And they were people who actually not only supported Trump, uh, but they also supported the Brexit, uh, talked to some Germans um, and some Brits actually, uh, that were both for Donald Trump, or at least had a, a more favorable opinion of him than did the uh, the younger people
0: we talked to. So. Um, Yeah, it was they're just like us, really. I I think it is interesting that you said that the uh, the people that were pro Donald Trump and people that were pro Brexit were the ones that didn't want to be recorded. Uh, That that to me is kind of interesting. And I I think it's almost uh, the same type of people that are supporting Donald Trump here in the United States. I think it's your white middle class, your disfranchised people that think that they have not been represented properly in the political justice system. On the other hand, I find them to be very loud and obnoxious. I wish they were more low key
3: and unwilling to be recorded and, and quoted and so forth. But, but what was the sentiment
0: for them as to why they supported Donald Trump?
2: Well, um, I, I the <clears throat> so the British couple they most you know they were more concerned with things that were going on in the UK and the Donald Trump thing was sort of you know in circumspect, you know looking at everything in terms of Brexit and Donald Trump. Um, things that are going on in American politics, they were, they like his style and they likened him to the sentiment that got, you know, the UK out of the EU. And that's sort of this nationalism, this sort of. Um, genius. Well, you could call it that, but it, it was a. Uh, it was a sense that they were losing their national sovereignty and national identity to a large federal structure that was, you can be called the EU. So um, they liked his style. They liked a lot of his policies. Now, the, the gentleman I spoke to who expressed the most enthusiasm for Trump stopped short of saying he'd vote for him, um, but he did like a lot of what he had to say, even though he didn't necessarily you know, say, oh yeah, I'd definitely vote for
0: him if I was an American. So, what are his policies? I'm a little unclear on that. I, you know, that's that's one of the things. I don't know that Donald Trump has a specific policy. I mean, you know, granted, if you go to his website, um, he he mentions like his tax plans, his healthcare plans, but that's not what he's running on as a presidential candidate. He's running on rampant bigotry. Yeah, maybe I would say that he's running on. I don't know that he believes everything that he says. I think that he's catering to a uh, uneducated. Um, white, middle-class American. And I think that a lot of those individuals are ones that typically do not turn out to vote, but he's encouraging them to come out and vote so they can, quote-unquote, make America great again. And if you look at photos and videos from his rallies, I mean, uh, it's just insane. I mean, I I guess on both sides, I mean, you have uh, people out there protesting violently, Uh, And then you have Donald Trump supporters also doing violent things. And so I've never in my lifetime uh, seen anything like this from a presidential candidate, seeing sort of this this violence on both sides, people that support him and oppose him. If you have a hankering to punch, like, say, a black guy or a journalist, a great
2: place to go is a Trump rally. I wouldn't go that far, but
0: uh, no, I'll, I'll, a I'll, lot of people have it. Those I replies.
2: will, I will stand up for Trump supporters in that I will say I, I think it's a little short-sighted to call them all to to pigeonhole them all in this one this I, one I spot. But uh, at the same time, yeah, I mean, he does, he does sort of have this populist appeal, and he says a lot of. Things that I don't think that he himself believes, and that's my problem is I don't think he's he's genuine. And I, you know, I've I've said from the beginning on this podcast he's not a conservative and doesn't represent conservative ideas. He is a uh, he's a panderer, and he's been doing it his entire life. That's what's so crazy. I mean, he's the only Republican presidential candidate who has given money to Hillary Clinton. So I it just boggles my mind that you know this many people could could buy into it. But
0: yeah, what was it in twenty twelve? I, I guess he endorsed Romney, but bef- before that uh, he was. He went through a phase where he was Republican and Democrat, and and now he's back to being Republican. So I think it's just whatever time he feels is right is whatever party he's going to align with. And now this week there's that talk that, you know, if you were elected president, would he actually accept the job? It's like he didn't deny it. He just said, you know, that's something I'd have to think about. It's like, are you serious right now? Like, you're actually doing this. Like, you're you're nuts. The guy is
2: just... uh, this is all you know for, from the european's perspective it, it is sort of scary for them because they have to deal with us and their leaders will have to deal with an eventual u.s president uh, whoever that happens to be whether it be clinton or trump but um it, it's just it's it's a it's a show it's a sideshow for the moment until the campaign really heats up here after the conventions um and that that's kind of what i'm looking at it as but yeah i mean i mean trump is a little scary for me as a conservative and um certainly me as an american with everything that's going on i, I Gosh, I hope whoever gets elected can show leadership, whether it be him or Clinton. Well, yeah, I think it make America great again
3: uh, only applies if you believe that America was greatest when blacks were forced to drink from different water fountains and go to different schools and women were not allowed in the workplace to have you know high positions like CEOs and so forth they were secretaries and they were objects I mean that's the great America that Trump believes in and would like to return to I think other than that there's really nothing about what he says that makes any sense I've heard no details uh, about any sort of uh, political platforms or, or any message that is anything beyond a very superficial like you said pandering um, but it's Not, uh, It makes sense to me that he's a conservative because this is what Republicans have been doing for years. He is sort of uh, the culmination of a long history of Republican pandering to racism, to bigotry, to regressive backwardness. And I think that it's uh, kind of come to pass the way that a lot of people have been warning that it would for years.
0: I think that's a very uneducated take. I I think that is a... uh... I think that, to you, I think your take right there is pandering to a small class of extreme leftists. Um, I think that is a very uneducated take. I, I do think that that applies to Donald Trump. I think saying that that applies to Mitt Romney, that applies to John McCain, I, to George Bush from Ronald Reagan, I think that's just absolute... I'm speaking specifically the Tea Parties. Okay, then you should have qualified that by saying, instead of saying Republicans. I think I think you could potentially say that with the Tea Party. I, I don't like the Tea Party, personally. I, 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 I think... Most people know on the show that I am a Republican, but I, I would consider myself more centrist than anything else. A uh, Tea Party that people like Ted Cruz, I, I just don't like. Um, but that's just my political view, and, and we're going to dive into this here in just a little bit. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that uh, Donald Trump, he, he, if he wants to actually run a legitimate campaign, which I don't know that he cares to, uh, he should talk about policy, but that's not his style. And the problem is, I think Hillary Clinton is actually falling into that same trap. She's trying to show that Donald Trump is not qualified to be president of the United States, but she's not discussing policy either. Uh she's, you know, kind of falling into that same trap. I think if she wants to actually differentiate herself and, uh, you know, Donald Trump right now in the national polls, he's actually closing the gap, which to me is frightening. He's not fundraising well. He's <laughs> I mean, he's running a terrible campaign. He's understaffed, uh, but he's somehow still closing in the polls. And I think the problem is Hillary Clinton is not getting back to the issues. I mean, she needs to prove I'm qualified because of A, B and C and she's not doing that and you know everything that's happening right now with uh, the emails and the fbi and now the doj or the department of state is now considering uh, an investigation against her because of uh you know leaking the classified documents so i, I don't know I, I think both the presidential candidates that we have right now are just uh disasters but we're going to get into that more here in the upcoming weeks the uh, presidential conventions convene at the end of july and as both uh presumptive nominees announce their vice presidential candidates but uh Again, we want to get into some more things here on the show. But uh, before we do that, we want to make sure that you follow all of our content online. Uh, We had a lot of, again, great feedback this past week on Facebook, and we encourage you to just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And you can also go to weeklybrewcast.com. And from there, we post our show content each Monday morning and it gets pushed straight to your inbox. So if you want to be the first person to know when our show is live, that's the way to do it also uh, search for us on iTunes tell us what you like tell us what you don't like and uh, you know give us positive feedback give us show ideas subject ideas and we will definitely take that into consideration but uh, we actually have uh, an an interesting show on tap Uh, first we're going to speak with Ryan Dunsmore who is the editor of the Crawfish Boxes uh, which is a great resource to go to it's the SB Nation blog for the Houston Astros Uh, I definitely enjoy reading it on a weekly basis and uh, we kind of dive into the Astros in the first half of their season and what to expect as we get to the second half, and then lastly, we're going to discuss uh, you know the tragedies that have happened this week with uh, you know the Alton Sterling, the uh, Philando Castile, and the five police officers that were killed in Dallas, Texas. Uh, so it's going to be uh, a fun talk about the Astros and kind of a somber segment as well. So without further ado, we've got a packed show on deck, so it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to the Weekly Brew. After struggling throughout the month of April with a historically slow start, the Houston Astros found another gear in late May and are now streaking as we hit the All-Star break. With the club right in the thick of the American League playoff mix, now joining us on the Weekly Brew to discuss the first half of the season and what we can expect as we near the trade deadline and beyond is Ryan Dunsmore of the Crawfish Boxes, the SB Nation home for the Houston Astros. Ryan, thanks for joining us.
1: Howdy. Thanks for having me
0: on. Now, if you're grading the Astros' first half of the season, what led grade would you assign to the club and why uh,
1: I, I guess I could probably take it month by month and give these grades would be a lot different but if I guess for the first half I would say probably like a B minus uh, because you're still in striking distance uh, at, at this point here you're you're right, out, right outside the wild card and the, you still have a whole rest of the season another 80 games here to or just under 80 games here to to make up the, the AOS division lead and, and you're going to see the Rangers come back but at the moment. I'd give them the the B minus because really the, the, the the lineup hasn't hit really well entire season. Not everyone's been clicking. The pitching has been far below what, what the team expected coming into the season. And it hasn't, it's not necessarily that they've come back and found some, uh, found the, this new plateau of great pitching again, they just kind of pitched where they should be at. And the lineup is finally coming around to hit. So it's, it's, it's B because you start off uh, B B minus because you start off really really bad and you come back to, come back to at least the median for to right before the All Star break.
3: So one of my favorite things about baseball in general would be the, uh, the arcane stats. And if you look hard enough, you can find a stat for anything. So uh, what might be encouraging to some, 28-11 t- uh, is the record since May 24th, which would be the best mark in the entire MLB. So that, that sort of pace I would imagine would be hard to keep up. But uh, to you, what's been the difference to sort of turn things around? And then how uh, how much of this pace do they need to keep up in order to have a shot at, uh, at the wild quarter or maybe even uh, the lead in the West?
1: Right now, I think the the two the the two main guys that, that kind of came around because I think there's been because they helped out in so many specific ways and what what turned them around was in the starting lineup you, or the starting rotation you had Doug Fister, who really has been the most stable pitcher the Astros have had the entire season, which is a bit surprising because he was supposed to be the guy's fourth or fifth starter, kind of just a veteran presence to throw out there and be very consistent. Because I mean, if you look at the team last year, they were they were throwing out. The, their quadruple A guys in in spot starts and stuff, and, and having to fill out all, fill in the rotation throughout the year before the end, uh, when they had Scott Casimir and McCullers come on. The other part of the, the rotation was having the guy I just mentioned, Lance McCullers, come back, and you have then you have two guys that are really clicking on on in the rotation and Fister and McCullers, and so they're not having these ba- giant backslides that they were having during the months of April and May. And really the, the surprising thing in the lineup has kind of been uh, there, there's the usual suspects of uh, Jose Altuve playing at an MVP-like level, but it's the guys like Luis Valbuena and Carlos Gomez coming back and kind of hitting hitting where, where they're supposed to be at least uh, even a little bit above for the month of June that really has kind of helped propel the offense because it's got, you've got all the guys that you know the names of, Altuve, Correa, Springer, they're all hitting at they're hitting in their spurt their hot streaks but when you actually get what you're supposed to be getting from from the secondary players gomez and albuena they really kind of made everything work perfectly the way the offense is supposed to be
0: Speaking of Valbuena, he's been on an absolute terror since May 7th. Uh, he's batting nearly 300. He's gotten 10 home runs, and he seems to be – he's actually leading the club in OPS in the last 50-plus games. And one of the guys that we've talked about a lot on this podcast has been Alex Bregman, who absolutely has torn it up uh, so far in AAA. And, you know, the Astros are considering maybe moving him to third base, but it seems that, you know, even if he continues to hit, if Valbuena continues this, you know, consistent offensive output, there's not going to be room for him – at the major league level, how important do you think it is for Valbuena to keep this up and, I guess, just allow Bregman to have more time to develop, or do you potentially see a scenario in which you maybe shift Valbuena over to first base and call Bregman up in August or September?
1: I think you've hit the nail on the head on the aspect that the Valbuena's basically hitting his way into keeping his job at the moment, because I, I think this, the same thing we've seen at the first base position with AJ Reed getting called up, I didn't really expect that to happen. Uh, but I could see that same thing happening at third base and saying, okay, well Valbuena, if you hadn't hit 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 recently here, uh, and Alex Bregman, come on down. Uh, the, but right now, there doesn't necessarily seem to be a spot. If you've got, if you're if you're happy with platooning Valbuena, Marwin, and Reed at first base, and Valbuena's hitting at third at third base, there's not really a spot for Alex Bregman. Are you gonna put him out uh, put him out in left field and, and bench Carlos Gomez and and move Rasmus over to – to, or Springer to center and Rasmus to right. Or I, I'm getting sidetracked here. But I, I, <laughs> I really – I think it's a great point of just that, that, that what you're saying of that Valbuena has been hitting the ball really well. And even with all the great things you're seeing from Alex Bergman, it's be really tough to not put – or keep uh, Valbuena, a guy who's proven himself at the major league level, at that position – uh, the, the Astros don't really necessarily have the time for someone to figure out their growing pains in major major leagues. We saw that with A.J. Reed. It's, uh People, <laughs> I've been really surprised to see that a few people have kind of been merciful. So just the kids been up here for a week and they're already ready to ship him down. It's like it's it, major leagues. Is, the major leagues are tough. It's kind of it, it's everyone's got a game plan. Everyone's at their top level. You're gonna you're going to struggle. So it's. I would say that that you're not going to see Alex Bregman, or you're going to see something crazy like the Astros find a way to ship out Valbuena for someone for for another piece.
0: I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Valbuena, especially as you just mentioned with a potential uh, trade deadline coming up here at the end of July. But uh, this is completely sidetracked. It's 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 not really conducive to the Astros' success. But when you look at Valbuena. He probably has like the most impressive bat flips that I've ever seen. I mean, even on a walk, the guy bat flips. I mean, uh, what does it just tell you about like the, the confidence and the looseness that not only he has but the rest of the team?
1: I think there was a previous the administration with like Bo Porter. I don't think you'd see bat flips from on walks uh, if, that, if that was that was that was the case. <laughs> but I I really do severely enjoyed seeing the man. Just get a casually get a, a, a walk and just like yeah man I I'm gonna flip this house I, I got this this is this is that was all me.
3: Historically, uh, listeners to the show know that I'm not a big baseball guy. I've been getting more into it thanks to Austin and his exhortations. And so, a guy whose name I heard constantly last year, of course, was Dallas Keuchel. And then when I tuned in to actually on watching the Astros this year, I was a bit befuddled. I mean, he seemed to really struggle. So he has in the last, uh, as of the time of this recording, the last three games, he's on a three-game winning streak. Uh, his numbers are up a little bit. Do you see what might be uh, an encouraging sign of some improvement for the rest of the season, and how he might be if there were a potential postseason series?
1: Maybe the last start to be 100% honest with you that, that that's that last start he did kind of show the same sharpness and effectiveness working in the bottom of the zone getting weak contact on the ground or, or at least just getting getting contacted stayed in the infield uh and for every positive step Dallas Keuchel's made this season it really seems like he, he's taking a step backwards it's I, I use his last start against the Rangers as kind of an example he looked great for I think it was, it was six innings, and then he would he fell down on on whatever he was confident in, or got lax a lax in judgment or, or mental focus at the time, and then he had two first pitch home runs uh, uh, in the bats. Here, that's really kind of been what the the, the problems with Keuchel is has been unable to locate the fastball, haven't haven't been able to keep the ball at the bottom of the zone, and when he has put thrown strikes, it's been the first pitch in the bat. Uh, teams have really kind of got a book on him at the moment to to sit on that pitch, and he's had a a lot more walks and home runs a season compared to last year. So I I, I feel sorry for you that you haven't been able to watch him in the previous years to be (laughs) successful because this is not Dallas Keuchel. One of the things that
0: Potentially constricts Keichel from having much success is because the Astros uh, face so many teams in the AL West with that unbalanced schedule and that so many of the players have, you know, 15, 20, 25 at-bats against the guy that they're able to almost, like, figure him out. What does Keuchel need to do in order to, I guess, make adjustments for uh, his style so that he can continue to be a, a consistent pitcher and get back to that, you know, 2014 and 2015 form?
1: I think that's a fair assessment that, that a lot of heat has been having to face a lot of AL West. West teams um i mean there hasn't been they haven't had necessarily too much success against him outside of the rangers been over the past few years so i guess maybe that's all culminating into into uh, a poor start to the season for him but i think that really kind of what he needs to do is get back to uh, on the site we kind of looked over what where his location has been at and and we kind of correlated with some kind of rule emphasis that started this year that they're kind of working on the bottom of the zone and kind of pushing it up a little bit in general for a way that how umpires are calling it. And that has been devastating for a guy that's so pinpoint and it's what it, his location was so effective. If he's not, if he's not getting those calls at the bottom of the zone, he's not, not going to be successful in the guy who can't throw more than low nineties. Uh, so what he needs to do is he's going to have to make that adjustment of having to live in a world where he's not going to get every one of those calls at the bottom of the zone. So he's just going to have to. He's been one of the best ground ball pitchers in baseball for the last three years. He needs to keep getting, keep trying to work at keeping staying in that profile of a guy that gets keeps the ball on the ground. He can't keep giving up home runs. He can't walk guys. It's more he needs to work on more that, that fastball slider change of kind of his off speed stuff is, is not been as sharp and, and really with the fastball location has also been kind of a, the, as I pointed out earlier, it's been not very successful in early, early count. So whether it's with Evan Gattis or Jason Castro, whoever's catching him that game he needs to work on a, maybe a better game plan as well.
0: As our listeners are aware, uh, the All-Star game is tomorrow, Tuesday, and the Astros will be represented by Jose Altuve, who's getting the start at second base, and Will Harris, who was named by manager Ned Yost, as one of the uh, the replacements on the pitching staff, and George Springer, you know, one of the last five uh, American leagues to, you know, to get that final vote. What does it mean for uh, the Astros to have three guys in that position where they're considered uh, for that all-star team? And what does it mean for a guy like Altuve who's starting for uh, his second straight year at second base?
1: Well, I think what it means for Jose Altuve is that he's no longer a Houston secret, but that uh, he's a really great baseball player that has a really great positive outlook on life and is an absolute joy to watch. I think, I think everyone across baseball has seen that now and is a guy that gives Clearly, that the, the most visible hustle that, that any one player can give, at being such a short stature, uh, and being such a great player. That means I don't think anyone ever ever even thinks about his height very much. Outside, if you're an Astros fan at this point here, you just see a guy that can hit the cover off the ball. Is a Gold Glove second baseman, has been a batting champion, and just he's been playing better and better each year. Uh, for Will Harris, that's I think that's a. A giant tip of the hat to Jeff Luno, who picked him up off the waiver wire for last season from the Diamondbacks, and he's been extraordinarily consistent over the last year or year and a half here. So it's it's really a, a success to take a guy that was literally anyone in the league could have had him, and you take him and he becomes your your num- basically your number one option outside of outside of being your closer or setup man last season and then he steals the closer job away early in the season is doesn't look like he's going to give it back. so it's to, it's really a compliment for also to the way the all-star game has changed to give him some kind of uh, kind of recognition that, that he's not some big name player, but he's just putting up a lot of great numbers. Now with George Springer, I think that's also another uh, uh, tip they've had to uh, a young player that's really has some of the best tools in baseball. Um, I will be shocked if he wins out over Dustin Pedroia since he is a Red Sox. Um, I think that's, but, but I really would be happy to see him. I'm a little disappointed that that Carlos Correa wasn't included in this as well. Uh, I know he's not had the great start of the season, but I I think at this point here that Correa is one of the best players in uh, his position in the league and also one of the, the young faces of baseball that needs to be in the game. But, uh, that's more fandom coming out than uh, logic.
3: Visible Hustle. I like that as a potential nickname, maybe. That's uh, for, for Altuve. But um, I, I noticed from your social media presence, obviously you work for the Crawfish Boxes. You're the editor there, so Astros is, is top priority for you. But you also uh, have won a number of contests with the Rockets and Texans. you covered the Texans for Battle Royale Blogs. So you are, kind of like us, very immersed in this Houston sports culture. So just as a general question, looking at this from a very broad perspective, which of the three major teams wins a title first here in Houston?
1: Oh... That's a good question. I'd have to say, at the moment, as the way the NBA looks like, I'm going to put the Rockets on the lowest part of that totem pole. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to say, because the the Sports Illustrated uh, prediction of 2017 for the Astros still exists, I'm going to I'm going to make their lives easier and say that's still the Astros. The Astros are they're definitely going to be the uh, Best chance at the moment. Now, the fact that Dallas Keuchel, as we previously talked, has fallen on his face and is no longer pitching like an ace, uh, then I would say that this is getting a little tougher of a task because the Astros don't necessarily have that top-line starter at the moment. Um, But it's definitely not, not not a slight towards the Texans. It's more I need to see some stuff before I can say they're a Super Bowl contender. I need to see Brock Osweiler on the field. I think he's going to do great. I think he's going to, they're going to have another productive season. I, I don't see why a division championship can't happen, but the, Rock, uh, the, the Texans standard for modus operandi at the moment has been division champion, do nothing after that. So can you do a step further than that with Brock Osweiler? I need to see that first. Right now it looks like Jeff Foner has built a champion in, in the Astros, at least the foundation, in, in the way that he did with the Cardinals. There's a really big window. I think there's just a a big window right now for the Texans. And will anyone besides the Golden State Warriors win an NBA championship for the next three or four years? I don't know. And I don't think the Rockets are definitely one of those teams that are going to be a Making
0: the salt for it. <laughs> Miracles can happen, but I agree. I don't think the Rockets have a shot in the next few years. But uh, again, we have Ryan Dunsmore on from the Crawfish Boxes. And uh, Ryan, we love the, the content that you guys put out on the Crawfish Boxes. I, I, I mean, it's almost on a daily basis, uh, whether it's covering, uh, you know, the, a game recap or uh, all star selections. I mean, you just, you guys do it all. Uh, for those that are, I guess, interested in following your work uh, on the Crawfish Boxes and also on social media, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? And do you have any, you know, big stories or features coming up here in the next few weeks
1: well uh, you can follow me over uh, on Twitter at nurse score Mre55 you can also follow our website at Crawfish at crawfish boxes and at the website at crawfishboxes.com. com make sure you check us out on Facebook as well uh, the anything but the the one thing we're working on right now is uh, kind of breaking out the why is Carlos Correa a snub for the all-star game and also kind of uh, not not to do the simple Simple, uh, just giving letter grades to the uh, each player, but we kind of want to look back and see what, where are the people, where are the players struggled this first half of the season, where they've improved, and where they are going forward, and where the Astros need to uh, improve the roster at. That's kind of this week's project here before the uh, end of the week here.
0: Well, Ryan, we definitely appreciate you joining us this week on the Weekly Brew Podcast. And uh, for those that uh, don't follow him already on social media or uh, read the crawfish boxes, we highly recommend that you do both. And uh, Ryan, we appreciate it. Well,
1: thank you for having me
0: on. You're listening to the Weekly Brew. Unfortunately, we have to discuss another tragic week in the United States as two instances of alleged police brutality dominated headlines early last week as Alton Sterling was shot and killed outside of a gas station in Baton Rouge, Louisiana on Tuesday, and uh, Philando Castile, a beloved lunchroom manager, was shot multiple times after being pulled over for a broken taillight in Falcon Heights, Minnesota on Wednesday, and uh, last Thursday evening during peaceful protests in Dallas, Texas, a uh, lone gunman targeted Dallas police and DART officers. From elevated perches, killing five officers and wounding seven others. And according to Dallas police, protesters helped capture the shooters and cops helped shuttle protesters to safety during the attack. And Guys, I, I'm just at a, a loss for words right now, and uh, I, I've shed a few tears this week, and uh, life is beautiful, folks. Uh, love one another. That's the only thing I can say, and uh, violence is just not the answer, and as Martin Luther King Jr. once said, uh, returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars, and uh, it's just been a, a tragic week, uh, You know, no matter what side... That you stand on, and to me, I don't know that we should have to take sides. I think that we should just be Americans and realize that this is America on America crime. This is America on America uh, hate that is going on right now, and uh, I think our generation has an obligation, a moral obligation, to ensure that this stuff does not happen for you know the next generation. That we can actually be the generation of change. Uh, however, I think that uh, I don't know. I think political leaders need to step up. And I don't know, I just I just kind of want to hear your thoughts on everything uh, that has kind of transpired this week.
3: Life is not beautiful for everybody in this country. Um, there's a large swath of the population for whom life is a uh, fear uh, and danger. And we are seeing very clear evidence of that, even to the point of seeing videos uh, capturing these moments as they happen. That is life for people in this country, for a lot of people in this country. And I think that one thing that's resulted from all this, um, and particularly the Facebook live videos that came out, is people are getting to see in a very visceral, clear way how, uh, you know, the proverbial other half lives. Um, not quite half uh, by proportion or percentage, but but certainly important people in this country. And, and we are getting uh, a little peek into what life is like for some people where we might not have seen it or understood it otherwise. Um, There's a Newt Gingrich quote. I was kind of talking to you about this off air. Um, And he said, it took me a long time uh, and a number of people talking to me through the years to get a sense of this. And this is on a Facebook Live broadcast from Gingrich. If you're a normal white American, the truth is you don't understand being black in America and you instinctively underestimate the level of discrimination and the level of additional risk. And if I were to nitpick, I would say normal white American is uh, a worrisome sentiment uh, because it normalizes the white experience or whatever. But the rest of that, I think, is something we can all agree with. And coming from a guy like Newt Gingrich, um, it's surprising to hear that sort of level headed uh, philosophy, I think. And it's, it's indicative of what people need to learn from this.
0: Uh, Jeremy, I'm going to turn it over to you here in just a second. But uh, yeah, I definitely agree with Newt Kingrich on those terms. And he's probably going to be Donald Trump's vice president nominee. So uh, there's strong rumors that's going to happen. He's been lobbying that for several weeks and uh, he's positioning himself. So uh, I I guess uh, he does make a fair point. But Jeremy, uh, you actually had just gotten back to the United States on Monday before these uh, events had transpired this past week. Uh, What was your opinion and initial reactions? Oh gosh. Uh, So many mixed emotions about
2: everything that's going on. Um, I've had a pretty strong opinion about um, the group Black Lives Matter for a while. Um, and uh, it really troubles me a lot of the rhetoric and tactics that they use, uh, especially when uh, you go to the shooter himself um, and look at the look at his own statements about why he did what he did. Um, but you know, this week it, it was really hard. Actually, a friend of mine from college, she knew one of the police officers that was slain. He was a member of their church and. Uh, She was crying because she said he'll no longer be there at the door helping people to their seats. Um, So... <clears throat> there was a lot, a lot that was going through my mind, I think, in regards to the two um, incidents here with uh, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. I'm, I'm withholding my judgment until I see more more evidence um, as well. And, and, and the reason I say that Marilyn Mosby and the Freddie Gray trial are a perfect example. She has had three acquittals now, um, and she was overzealous in prosecuting those police officers, three of whom were black, might I add, um, and she's now facing disbarment charges. So, people who overzealously jump to conclusions to support a preconceived narrative uh, that is not supported by the data and the statistics, I'm uh, I have nothing but shame to, to heap on those people. So, um, I think before I, you know, before I, I make any judgments about what happened, um, I think more information needs to come forward. However. You know, at first glance, both of those incidents look really bad, um, especially the Philando Castile. If it is true that he was a concealed carry holder, he was carrying legally. Um, and the, that video is just gut wrenching. I mean, if you can't watch either of those videos without, you know, cussing at the
0: screen, you're, you're a stronger man than I I'm going to jump in here with two things. The first one is regarding the NRA. Uh, I thought the NRA missed an opportunity to actually do something. And I I thought they should have issued a statement condemning uh, the murder of Philando Castile uh, in in Minnesota, uh, you know, because their whole advocacy is we want to protect your right to carry a gun legally. And he uh, allegedly had a concealed carry license. He was a legal carrying individual so that's the person that the NRA should support it, why do you think they didn't because he's black yes of course. and yes. because a lot of their they were in a difficult situation because a lot of their members are police officers and so at, at, at what point do you step up and say I understand that they were between Iraq and hard place but what they should have been, they should have issued a statement and they just didn't uh, you know but they didn't do. They didn't issue a statement at the time of the shooting. The next day, but they actually did issue a statement on Friday. Um, they actually uh, sent out a tweet saying the reports from Minnesota are troubling and must thoroughly be investigated. Uh, hashtag Second Amendment. Hashtag NRA. So uh, I don't know. It's just that that to me is bothersome. But the second thing that I want to bring up is social media. When Alton Sterling was killed on Tuesday night. Um, I was, you know, following on Twitter, uh, watching the news. I, you know, was disturbed, but uh, my mindset was: this happens a lot. This is just another police shooting. You know, there's going to be protests. It's just cyclical. This is what's going on. And then Wednesday night, um, when Philando Castile was killed, I was like, "You've got to be kidding me!" Two straight nights. This is unbelievable. And on Thursday night, when the Dallas shootings happened, I was just like, this to me is baffling. Three straight days. I, I just, I, I can't comprehend it. But back to the social media aspect with Philando Castile, uh, his girlfriend captured, I guess, the, uh, the moments after the shooting took place on Facebook Live. And when I first saw the video, this is before I knew anything about the shooting, um, she was so calm. In that video uh, describing the events as she remembered them and I think that when I first saw the video I almost thought it was staged just because how calm she was in that situation and you know as if you watch the entire video I believe it was the eight nine minute mark uh, she's in the back of a, a squad car and you actually see her start to lose her composure and just the emotion coming out when she realizes that her boyfriend might actually not make it and then at that point I was like oh my gosh Like, this is not staged. Uh, I thought that, you know, maybe it could have been a video in response to Alton Sterling and just like a dramatization. Um, Because I I know that if I'm in a car with somebody and they get shot, my first reaction is not going to be to pull out my cell phone and stream something on Facebook. But I think that uh, social media and Facebook Live has changed the way we look at the world in the past week. Uh, the, the the fact that we can stream anything on our iPhones at any given time and put it out there to the world, it gives a unique look into someone's life and situation that we've never had before. And to me, that's fascinating. And I want to pose the question to you, uh, does social media help or hurt after tragic events? And and when I say that, I want you to refer to, you know, the Philando Castile obviously that being covered live on Facebook live. And then also the Dallas shootings, there were people in the streets of Dallas filming on Facebook live as the shooters and the police officers were running toward the shooter and people were lying on the ground. But does social media hurt or help after to speak to your first point uh, i think the reason she's
3: calm in that situation is because that is business as usual Uh, a police officer shooting a black man is really um not anything crazy or unexpected i think that uh from what i've heard from from african americans i know and what i've read uh that they they realize that is a viable possibility every time they get pulled over by a police officer it could end in a shooting and often does hold on
0: on. i just want to clarify Uh, it It could end in a shooting, but you just said it often does. That's just not true. Sure it is. I've got numbers. Okay, but when you say if you get pulled over and it often ends in a shooting, that's saying that more than 50% of the time if a black person gets pulled over? Far too often. That's fine. I just want to make sure that you clarify your language there. No, more than 50% of black traffic stops do not end
3: in death, but far, far too many do. It is an epidemic in this country. But um, Michael Denzel Smith, who's an activist, and he wrote um, Invisible Man got the whole world watching. Uh, he had a really interesting quote about these videos. He said, the videos are crucial for documenting this violent violence, but insufficient for changing it. Black communities have known this is the way police deal with black people for generations, so it isn't enlightening for us. But even for the white people who may be sympathetic, what these videos seem to do is reaffirm the distance from their lived experience. This becomes the tragedy and trauma of black life in America, the thing that keeps happening to black people. And so long as sympathetic white people feel no more responsibility than watching the videos then nothing changes and I could not agree more with that statement that encapsulated my feeling about the significance of this it's good to have these visceral responses to understand because maybe without these videos there are people who just simply don't understand that this is the reality of life in quote-unquote black America but it's insufficient it's not enough simply to see it
0: I, I do you think it's it, it is kind of crazy uh, you look at statistics that show uh, officer shootings and uh, you know I guess pull over traffic stops for example uh, I think, what is it, black and Hispanics make up 30% of the United States population. Um, however, in, in terms of officer shootings, blacks are shot at a rate five times more than their white counterparts. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, even though they make up a smaller portion of the United States population, they are being shot at a higher rate. And The rate at which black
3: uh, Af- African-American men, 50 to 34, are shot is five times higher than for white men of the same age.
0: So, it, it, to me, it's baffling. And, and Jeremy, I'm going to ask you the social media question here in a second, but I just want to kind of bring up a point. When you said Black Lives Matter and you were talking about the movement, uh, I think that we need to try to separate the two. I think we need to try to separate the uh, the founders of the organization and just the phrase, Black Lives Matter. And yes, Black Lives Matter. And I do think that the organization has some issues, especially when they when you have organization mm-hmm according you know especially when you have members of that organization that are going out there and shooting cops i don't think violence is the answer for anything i think that you need to have peaceful discourse unfortunately the rest of our society doesn't look at it that way but i think that there are issues that need to be resolved and discussed by our politicians, and I'm calling on our Republican leaders to actually do something because I think that part of the inaction is because of Republican leaders, and I, I do give credit to both the governors of Louisiana and the governors of Minnesota who have, uh, I, I think, stepped up uh, to the plate after these shootings and essentially said we're not going to stand for this, but uh, Jeremy, I'm going to pose the same question to you. Does social media help or hurt after tragic events? Um. So I was thinking a lot about this
2: over the weekend, and social media... In my opinion, it both clarifies and distorts our reality. It clarifies our reality because we can see now very vividly what happens during incidents like this. I think it distorts the reality by um, making it look like it happens a lot more often than it does. If you're looking at national statistics over the past few decades, altercations with police officers are actually down. Um, and if you look uh, here at the Washington Post here last year, uh, in 2015, Police officers killed 662 whites and Hispanics and 258 blacks. Uh, The overwhelming majority of all those police shooting victims were attacking the officer, often with a gun. Um, The simple fact is, in the black community, you're much more likely to be the victim of violence perpetrated by um, another black person than you are a police officer. Um, And it's unfortunate. I mean, gosh. Sure,
3: but that's irrelevant. Of course that's true. It should be far more true than it is. The amount of officer deaths are are vastly over... um, are way more than they should be relative. Of course, you're more likely to die by someone else's hand. You shouldn't ever die by a cop, nor should you die by someone else's hand either. But those numbers are closer than they ought to be. Of course, you're more likely to be killed by someone of your own community. That makes perfect sense. But if you compare it to whites being killed by whites versus whites being killed by cops, those numbers are drastically far apart, meaning that officers are killing black people way more often uh, in proportion than they are killing white people. The fact that there are more white people colors some of those numbers, I get that.
2: The black criminality rate is also
0: exponential higher because because
3: police target blacks. And I, and
0: I I would say that the criminality rate is a little bit different because of I I, I don't want to put race into that issue. I think a lot of the, the criminality rate has to go to socioeconomics. Um, I think if you weigh socioeconomics and you put the same yeah, white Americans in the same socioeconomic classes, you know their uh, you know black and Hispanic counterparts, I, I think that you're going to have similar criminality rates. I don't I, I, I don't think that's a race issue. I think that's a socioeconomic where you brought up where what your education level is.
2: Well, look. Here, here, here's the here's the reality of all this. We have a this country has 300 million people in it, and despite the millions of interactions between police and citizens, including black citizens, the number of controversial shootings is actually dramatically low. It's so low we can name off individual names: Laquan McDonald, Walter Scott, Tamir Rice, Eric Garner. It's not, you know, rather than consider the horror of a mass death of a true open season, I mean, we, it's really actually low. It's I agree one is too many, but you have to acknowledge that, you know, we, we don't live in a perfect world and we're going to do our best to make it better. And I think uh, with everything that's happened, we have to. But this idea that there's some open season on, on black men is just it's a it's a myth perpetrated by. Uh, special interest groups like Black Lives Matter.
0: I, I will say that Black Lives do matter, and I'm not going to step away from that. I think that the organization has significant flaws, okay? But I think the whole concept behind it, that Black Lives Matter, is something that we as white people, we are all three privileged white people. I mean, you're from Memorial, Kevin and I are from the Woodlands. I mean, we did not have to deal with any of this growing up. Like, If we were pulled over, it was because we were doing something wrong. All people in this country should have the same rights and not the way that we're looking at it is is essentially, I guess the way the American society is right now is that animal animal farm quote that all pigs are created equal but some pigs are more equaler than others. I think that's kind of the way American society is right now and I think a lot of that is driven by socioeconomic uh, issues. But uh, I want to also look at the media here for two different things. Uh, The first one is how organizations like the New York Post actually covered the event. They had a front page headline uh, saying civil war uh, in huge white caps uh, saying four cops killed at anti-police protests. When they went to print, uh, the fifth officer had not yet died. Uh, and the second is Dallas police actually issuing a uh, a picture. They sent out a tweet with a picture uh, saying that they were looking for a, suspic- uh, for a specific suspect whose name was Mark Hughes. Mm-hmm. And uh, they called him a suspect and said, if you have any information, please contact us right now. Because? Because He was, they listed him as a suspect. Well, the
3: reason they listed him as a suspect was because he appeared in some photographs in a video carrying openly carrying a firearm. A black man in a camouflage shirt, openly carrying a firearm. Which
0: matched description. And, but my question for you is specifically first, we're going to talk about how the media was covering it. And uh, secondly, with Mark Hughes, uh, we'll get into that in a second, but his name and picture were plastered everywhere on social media, all the major news outlets. But, uh, you know, I, I, when, when it comes to social media, I don't know that social media is helping in terms of solving the issue. I think it's helping bring the issue to light a little bit more. But I think as long as you're sitting behind your computer and your phone, you're not going to actually be an agent of change. I think you need to go out there and uh, write letters. Call your politicians. Go out there and peacefully protest. But I think that what the New York Post is doing, posting civil war on their paper... I think that's a stretch. I think that only exacerbates the problem.
3: I don't think it's a stretch. I think it's a fair representation of the way some people feel. Uh, I think I know black people that feel like there is a war on them, and and you can say that's accurate or not accurate. I don't know that any of us at this table actually know that, but it's certainly representative of the way a large swath of the population feels. And so. It, it's not that the rhetoric is helpful or not helpful. Rhetoric isn't necessarily designed to be helpful. They're trying to sell papers. You know, people have agendas or whatever. But is it representative of the way some people feel in this country? And I say the answer is yes.
2: Yeah, the, the way that the media, you know, the New York Post is a rag and it always has been. It's known for tacky headlines. So um, I won't speak to that. But in terms of social media and its role in helping or hurting the investigation, um, Twitter and Facebook should really leave police work to the police. Um, I, I remember after the Boston bombing, um, there were several guys of various ethnicities, white, Middle Eastern, Hispanic, that had backpacks on uh, near the where the bomb went off in, in Boston during the marathon. And several of those several pictures of these guys were thrown around social media and with the hashtag find this guy and so there were a lot of guys that um, were hunted after or sought after unjustly who were not suspects in the case. Um, and so this is not the first time it's happened. I feel really, I feel for the guy um, that was the victim of that particular photograph because he was legally carried. First of all, you're not going to legally carry open carry a long gun and then go up to a parking garage and start shooting. That just doesn't make sense. Um, but he was legally carrying it. Uh, that was his constitutional right. And I think it was uh, silly what happened to him. And I think people should think twice before they retweet stuff like that. I
0: think Mark Hughes picked a bad day to open carry. I think if you open carry any day, you pick a bad day to open carry. That's just my opinion. There are 31 states that have open carry laws I think those 31 states are messed up, but that's just my opinion. Uh, In in terms of uh, the Boston bombings, like you mentioned, uh, I believe the New York Post also ran a headline uh, with photos of two individuals uh, calling them the bag men and said suspects. And uh, those two individuals actually sued uh, the New York Post and uh, settled for an undisclosed amount. And I think Mark Hughes might have a similar case. The reason why I say this is because of a mistweet and the Dallas police they corrected the record eventually when they were on the camera saying that they had a person of interest, Mm -hmm. but that initial tweet said that he was a suspect. And I, I think that if you are a person of interest and you are detained and you complain about it, then I'm sorry that you are inconvenienced for a few hours. If there's an active investigation and you have potential leads and somebody matches a description, has a gun with them, then I think that, you should be detained and ask questions, and if you're innocent, you're released. No big deal. I think the problem here is that Mark Hughes was labeled as a suspect initially by the Dallas Police Department. And have you ever been
3: detained by police, Austin? Uh, you say it's no big deal that you're just released immediately. Actually, this is a big deal in the philando Castile uh, thing as well. His girlfriend was detained and treated like a criminal. I don't, if you've never been detained by police, I'm not sure you're 100% aware of what goes on in those situations, those rooms, the way that people are
0: treated. Okay, so no, I've never been detained by the police, but in terms of an active investigation, investigation, which there is a terrorism going on in your city, and your city is on essentially martial law at that point, then yeah, if you are suspected, or a person of interest, and you're detained for 30 minutes to an hour, and it's inconvenienced to you, yeah, that sucks. It sucks that you were wrongly detained and asked questions, but at the end of the day, if you're vindicated, you're vindicated, but for Mark Hughes, I think that's a separate situation, uh, because he was labeled as a suspect. CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, all of those news outlets called him a suspect, and then they quickly corrected the record, and decided you know what if we continue to call him a suspect and he's not the actual shooter then we're going to get sued. So they switched that narrative immediately to a person of interest. And uh, I, I guarantee you lawyers, when they heard Mark Hughes and his brother speak to CBS that evening around midnight, uh, lawyers were sitting there just licking their chops.
3: His lawyer's actually gone on record. They're, they are filing, I believe. I yeah,
0: and so sure. they're going to settle. Uh, they're going to settle. I don't know what that amount's going to be, but it's he, going to he happen. He deserves I, it. I think so,
3: too. Um to clear this up for me. Micah Johnson, the shooter. Uh, I'm looking at the New York Times as of yesterday saying he has no direct ties to any protest or political group. Are we saying that he's a member of Black Lives Matter because nothing I'm reading would indicate that he is.
2: No, but in his rant, he was very explicit that uh, the organization uh, somehow was connected to what he was doing. Um, I know that he had some connections to a black power group, and of course, you know, Black Lives Matter. Uh, part of their platform is lifted word for word from the Black Panther platform from the 60s. Uh, they have numerous connections. I mean, they're all they might not be directly connected, but indirectly connected. Um, and certainly it's not hard to see where their rhetoric and tactics could um, further someone's uh,
0: intentions if they were thinking that that's what they needed to do. So he was not part of the Black Lives Matter organization specifically, but he was part of militant Uh, at least on Facebook, he was a a, a participant of uh, militant activism, including, I I believe there was an organization in Mississippi, I I can't recall the name right now, I I read the article on Saturday, but uh, that organization's Facebook page after the two shootings in Minnesota and Louisiana called on its members to kill police officers, specifically in Louisiana, and called on its members that we were going to have a barbecue of pigs. Uh, So that organization that he was a member on actively posted on, on social media, advocated the killing of police officers. So yeah, I, I think that it is important to differentiate, you know, that he was not a, you know, card carrying member of Black Lives Matter, but he was sympathizing with radical activist groups. And I, I think that, you know, just like you can't paint Micah Johnson as the poster boy for all of Black Lives Matter and in the movement, I, I don't think you can you can use police officers to categorize them as one person pulling the trigger is not the same as the other million people that are out there protecting the community. And that's the one issue that I do have is that our country is so divided right now on you've got the camp that believes black lives matter and then you have almost the retort saying, no, 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 all lives matter. Okay. And then you have the other group saying blue lives matter. Okay. Those aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. And I think that's how our society is kind of operating right now. I think that you you can be uh you know pro black lives matter and understand that bl- black lives do matter and they are treated differently than us white people here in the united states but at the same time you can also support the police department like you don't have to separate the two you don't have to pick sides yeah no
2: you don't have to be a black Lives matter supporter to support police accountability and i don't i don't think that's a statement uh that anyone really disagree with i i I've I've I have close friends that um, have been manhandled by cops before um, a couple actually and one by some federal agents that were not very nice to him and so I I'm very aware of uh, the state and how they can overuse uh, force to to get what they want and so um, I'm I'm Totally, you know, for police accountability, and I, I think most cops would agree with that as well. No one, no one wants to work for a, a racist, bigoted, you know, corrupt department. Sure, people do.
3: Racist, bigoted people would love that, and those people do. Uh... I think a lot of those people do want that power, do crave that authority that comes with it, and the uh, ability to indiscriminately be racist and have a whole systemic group of people ready to have your back, no matter what it is that you've done, because you're one of them.
2: I just disagree with that. I, I don't. I don't think that's true at all. I, I the the cops that I know personally and the ones that I've interacted with, that just that doesn't. Uh, I, I have no doubt that there is a culture within some departments that makes acts of racism more excusable. And that is, that is problematic. I think uh, despite the Michael Brown verdict and the, the narrative that came out of that ended up not being true, the climate at the Ferguson Police Department was, was corrupt. They were using their people as an ATM machine by excessively fining them, pulling them over, giving them trouble. Um, yeah, there are act- there are bad police departments out there.
0: Um, I don't believe it's the majority though. Dallas PD is not a bad police department. You actually look um, by several accounts, uh, their police chief David Brown. Uh, he is he's done a remarkable job since taking over. Washington Post actually had a story I believe in January twenty fifteen, uh, talking about how uh, they changed the way they did things in Dallas. Uh, they they emphasized not using force, and because of that. Um, you know, excessive force complaints dropped dramatically. Crime rates have started to drop dramatically in Dallas. I've spoken with several people that live in Dallas. Uh, they say that, you know, there's generally a good vibe and relationship between the cops. I mean, look at photos of the the protests going on. It was peaceful. There were Black Lives Matter uh, protesters posing with pictures of cops. Uh, you know, I, I think the cops understood why people were exercising the right to protest. And to me, that's what makes Dallas so sad is there was any there was nothing going wrong in that situation until Micah Johnson acted out, shot five officers or killed five officers, shot twelve people
3: total. But And it's important to distinguish that Micah Johnson, the shooter, does not represent Black Lives Matter. The thousands and thousands of people that peacefully protested, that we saw plenty of images, that the protest was even winding down at that point, those people represent Black Lives Matter.
0: I agree. I agree. But if you agree with that statement, you'll also have to concede the point that the officer who pulls the trigger on Philando Castile and the officer who pulled the trigger on Alton Sterling do not represent the millions of police officers in America?
3: No, but I think that we have a system in place that um, very few of those types of shootings are ever um, end up in conviction. Fortunately, we have the ability to film them now. And that's, again, the, the biggest thing to come out of this. I think if you are any person in America and you have any interaction with a cop, you should immediately turn your phone on and begin filming that interaction. There should never be a moment where they are not captured and their actions are not recorded. They need to be held accountable because of the amount of power that we give them. And if 98% of cops are great people who never do anything wrong, that's fine. 2% is way too many. There should never be a moment, I think particularly if you're a black American, where you are not documenting your interaction with the police in order to assure that people see what happens. And Facebook Live is an interesting format for that. I'm glad that they are providing uh, people the ability to do
0: that and to be heard and to be seen. I think you do make a fair point to record the conversation. I can tell you that I've gotten pulled over twice for allegedly speeding, and I've recorded the conversations each time. And it's the same thing you asked to see the radar gun, Um, because I I know for for a fact there was this one time that I was pulled over uh, for speeding, and the cop was actually on—he was coming— opposite direction of me. And he was coming, uh, I was actually going up on a hill, and he was coming up on the opposite hill. And we crossed paths. And then he turned around and flashed his uh, lights. And he said that he clocked me speeding by a school that was about a mile down. And I'm thinking, there's no way that you could have potentially seen me with this hill. But at that point, I didn't record it. And I know for a fact that I was not speeding because I had cruise control set. And I knew that I was going through a speed trap. And so (laughs) in my mind, I I know for a fact I wasn't speeding, but there was nothing I could do. But yeah, I do agree that uh, we should hold all people accountable. And not only police officers, but we also need to hold protesters accountable. Because in Dallas, there were several, there were hundreds of peaceful protesters. But in places like New York, on Thursday night, you had people chanting, fuck the police and let's kill the cops. So yeah, I think you need to hold... All groups accountable in this situation, and not just one. Uh, but uh, this has actually been, uh, you know, an interesting topic. I'm going to read some tweets real quick, and then we'll go ahead and wrap this thing up. But there were some, there were several tweets that I saw on Thursday night that I kind of favorited just because I wanted to read on the podcast. And one of them was Deliner Liner to Shields, who plays center fielder for the Texas Rangers. Uh, he said that quote. We are supposed to provide better lives for the ones that come after us. Now the whole world is looking at us like we are crazy. Brian Edward Hill tweeted that, while some people want more hate, I'm watching a black police chief and a white mayor fighting tears, working together to protect us. John Pryor, who writes for the Dallas Business Journal, said that, when it happens in your city, you feel the pain you should have felt when it's been happening in your country. Uh, Alika Siddiqui, who is a uh, a stake in stiff arms on Twitter, if you don't follow her, uh, she said that, I failed to understand the rush to pick sides and things which our humanity is on the line i'm on the side of giving a shit about one another imagine a world in which we feel connected to all others simply because we realize that being a human being is enough for us to have in common so I thought those were pretty strong tweets, and just kind of indicative of how I feel in the situation. That you don't have to pick sides. You can believe that you know police should be held accountable for their actions. You know whether it's pulling someone over unjustly or pulling a trigger when they should have used restraint. And you can also hold members of uh, you know like people like Micah Johnson accountable for what they did because they don't represent. People like Micah Johnson don't represent the entire Black Lives Movement. Just like certain rogue police officers don't represent the entire police force, the people that actually go out there and try to do good on a daily basis. And uh, you know, Jeremy and I have a fraternity brother who is a SWAT officer in Austin, Texas, and uh, I'm, I'm, you know pray for him right now because I, I know he probably goes out and you know fears for his life now that you know that he could be a target as well and you know w- when he goes out to certain situations he's trying to de-escalate the situation that's what he's trained to do so he's he's not just a traffic cop I mean he's going in there specifically trained to do a job and now he feels that you know potentially his life could be at risk because of all of the actions that have going on so my only hope as an American is that you are aware of the issues that are going on in America And that you use your calm, collective, educated self to uh, try to make change. And keep in mind that violence is not the answer to that change. Make sure that it happens politically. Because without our politicians actually taking charge, this cooperation for both Republicans and Democrats nothing's going to happen.
3: The violence is not helpful, but it is entirely understandable. It is totally reasonable that people would be that angry, that people would want to call out for the deaths of the people that they feel are responsible, which the police hold together as a group. They definitely, um, I understand that anger, but I agree that it is not, uh, it is not helpful. It's not conducive to effective change to take the lives of other police because it only escalates the violence. But I in no way think that that anger is unjustified or unreasonable.
2: Yeah, uh, it, I guess understandable in the, through the lens of a lot of misinformation. And uh, certainly uh, the, this whole thing is just, just so heartbreaking. Um, what, what, I, what I fear most uh, from all this is that good police officers will police areas that need to be policed and innocent people will die as a result because they don't want to be involved in the next officer shooting. That a lot of people will end up being the victims of crimes that were preventable um, or otherwise able to be solved because cops will just not want to deal with it. And um, most of the, the body count from that will be young, young black Americans. And that, I think that's a shame from all of this, is that it's just lead, this is gonna to lead to more distrust uh, between the
0: police and the community. And I, I think that the cool thing about what happened in Dallas is that um, it was peaceful. Officers were there supporting the protesters. They were taking photos with them. You know, there were a few protesters that were a little rowdy, shouting things they shouldn't, but, uh, you know, for the thousands of people that were there, you know, majority were doing the right thing. They were just saying, let's hold these officers accountable for their actions. And officers were also agreeing justice needed to be served. And uh, right now on my iPhone, I'm looking at an image uh, from Ting Shen, who is a uh, photo intern for Dallas Morning News. And his photo actually ended up on the front cover of the uh, Dallas Morning News on Friday morning. And it's a uh, uh, an African-American DART officer um, at the Baylor University Hospital Hospital. Uh, holding a nurse in his arms, crying, and it's just a very powerful image to look at. And I don't know. My, I guess my parting words here are that this has to end. And um, you know, prayers go out to all those that have been impacted by you know the incessant violence that has riddled our country this past week. And uh, just a message to our listeners, a message to our generation: um, we have the power to change it. Make sure that we actually do the right thing, and uh, justice for all. And you know that we can all be equals under the law rather than the animal farm line that, uh, some people are more equal than others. Closing time. Another great episode of the weekly brew podcast. And again, this has been episode 51 and Jeremy, it's been good to have you back here. Uh, I appreciate you getting me audio from, uh, I guess the Donald Trump, uh, you know, Q and a over there in uh, the Netherlands, but, uh, Dolores, we hope that, uh, you did well today for your miss USA preparations and, uh, that you dominate and, uh, uh, you don't rep the Weekly Brew. I mean, because, uh, you I think, know... I think she's taking photographs. Well, right? I, I think she actually won the Weekly Brew pageant. Yeah, she did. Unfortunately... <laughs> uh not very competitive. Yeah, I think... Uh, <laughs> (laughs) Kevin, Jeremy, and myself were in a three-way tie for second place. (laughs) Best of luck, Dolores, as you uh, prepare for that on Labor Day weekend. Also, thanks to our uh, guest, Ryan Dunsmore from the Crawfish Boxes. If you don't follow him on Twitter or social media, I highly recommend checking out his content. Astros at the halfway point right now, at the All-Star break. Congrats to uh, Jose Altuve. Congrats to Will Harris for getting the All-Star nod. Also, thanks to our friend, Linda Nunnery of uh, Root Sports, who actually hooked us up with some Astros tickets on Friday night. Uh, Went to the game, had a great time, got to see a walk-off home run. By Jose Valbuena, and that was just a, a fun experience. But also, uh, credit to you two guys for uh, actually having a calm and rational conversation regarding the uh, the tragic events that happened this past week. And uh, you know, I hate that we have to discuss this on the podcast, and uh, hopefully, one day we won't have to discuss this. Uh, but I think that it was something that needed to be addressed this week. On a separate note, uh, you know we want to make sure that you follow all of our work on social media. Uh, just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And you can also follow our website at weeklybrewcast.com. And also, each week, we want to make sure that you give us iTunes reviews. And unfortunately, this week it doesn't look like we have any we have no new iTunes reviews we're at 55
3: I think 100's a nice big round number I'd like to get to so uh, if my math is correct we're like 45 away so um, if one in every 100 people that listens to this gives us a review we will be there so uh, well no that's two in every 100 one out of every 50 people we are currently at one out of 100 we want two out of every 100 so guys if you have not gone to iTunes uh, do so and, uh, and leave us an iTunes review with five stars uh, and we'll give you a shout out on the podcast as we've done in past podcasts you'll be our favorite favorite listener for a week, uh, which is a terrific honor. I mean, honestly, it would be one of the best things that could happen to you. So go ahead and make that happen for us and for you, and we would certainly appreciate it. And if you have any questions about how to do that, uh, feel free to reach out to me at kmichaelcook on Twitter. I need more followers, and uh, I would love to explain to you how that process works.
0: And if you want to have some entertainment, just go search my at uh, mentions right now. That's at a statin. I've probably got about 100 mentions from Canada just ripping me right now. So uh, Shout out to you in Canada. Uh, We hope that you are listening and uh, sorry, I'm not sorry but uh it's been another great episode of the weekly brew podcast again this has been episode 51 thanks to ryan dunsmore for joining us from the crawfish boxes uh, We hope you like that conversation also thanks to kevin and jeremy for participating in our conversation about the tragic events that happened this past week and uh, dolores we will see you next week but as always for my co-host kevin cook jeremy paxton my name is austin staten we'll see you next week
3: and guys remember no matter who you are where you go or what you do this week love one another
1: You've been
2: listening to the Weekly Brew.